Well, I'm so glad that you were here with us today and uh, you're enjoying your services from your living room or your uh, dining room, kitchen, wherever you are right now. I just know that uh, we believe that God is working inside of our hearts. And we're in the, uh, in the midst of our Money Management for Christians series. And today we're going to be tackling the idea of wealth and wealth, wealth building. Our sermon series trajectory is going along. When we started, we were talking about scarcity and talking about how to, how to make ends meet. And, uh, and at the ending, we're talking about, you know, all this wealth and, and as, as we approach that. And it's really cool to see this trajectory happen where, where as we follow these principles, God is teaching us and infusing us with the ability to uh, gain wealth. And we're going to talk about what wealth is for today, where it goes, and, and how we deal with it. Um, before we get into any of that, we really want to establish God's value of the world. See, there's a, there's a theology that exists called dispensationalism, and it actually argues that God doesn't value this world at all, which means that, that nothing that happens here matters, whether you have wealth or whether you don't or any of this, it doesn't really matter. And on one degree, that's true, but in, when we look at God's final kingdom and, and see that what we're doing, what we're attempting to do, pushes us towards a trajectory of the realization of God's kingdom, at least foreshadowing it, then we're able to say that what is that kingdom like and how do we view God's view of wealth? So God does value this world and I can show you this. It surprised me where it comes from, um, but I can show you this in, in the Bible. That wasn't the surprising part. The surprising part is where I learned it. When I was, uh, when I was doing my seminary degree, I, I took a course that I thought was a bird course, and, uh, and it's called the Theology of Land. The Theology of Land. And I, and I was like, this is unbelievable. And the author, Walter Brueggemann, of one of the, the author of one of the textbooks, Walter Brueggemann, um, suggests that all of God's promises are tied to land. And at first, in, in, because I'd never heard that before, I was like, what are you talking about? And, and he just did this, and it was really impressive, and I saw something happen here. Genesis 1.28 um, says, And God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And, the, and God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that's on the face of the earth and every tree uh, with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And it goes on and talking about these physical things that we now can measure as wealth, land and property and food. These are all measures of wealth um, along with money. We, we, it doesn't stop there. It continues right after the flood in Genesis 9, 7. It says, and you, Mo, uh, Noah, be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. And, and then he establishes his covenant with Noah that says that he is that he's going to take care of the earth and not flood it again. Genesis 12 is the call of Abram, where we see uh, Genesis 12:1. Now the Lord said to Abram, "Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to what? To a land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation." 
And we see this continued theme of land and place in the Old Testament where, where God is making a place for himself. He does it in the Exodus where, where he makes a place for himself in the tabernacle. He does it in Israel where he creates the nation of Israel and gives it place and sustains it. He does it in the temple imagery which is the presence and the place of God. It just happens again and again and again. And and then in the New Testament, it doesn't stop. It continues to expand. In Acts chapter 3, we get to, uh, or sorry, Acts chapter 2, verse 36, we get to Jesus um, and, uh, and, and its announcement to Israel. Watch this. It says, let all the house of Israel know Israel is a land and a people. Let all the house of Israel know, therefore, for certain, that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, what is Jesus Lord over? He's Lord over creation. He is Christ, Messiah, for those who are in creation. God is Lord. Jesus is Lord over all of this. And in his lordship, Jesus says all authority in Mark chapter sorry Matthew chapter 28 Jesus says all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you and behold I am with you always, even to the end of the age. There's the expansion from Israel to now all nations, where God is saying, I am making my reign and my lordship cover all the earth, every nation. And finally, we see in Revelation 21, we see um, the vision of the new heaven. 21.10 says, uh, and he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city of Jerusalem, a land, a city, coming down out of heaven, having the glory of God, its radiance like a rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It's a rich city. It has a great high wall. It's a defended, protected city with 12 gates and and at the gates 12 angels, and on the gates the name of these 12 tribes, the sons of Israel, were inscribed. And, and you see this description of, of gates, and later on you see that the gates are always open to the nations. And so we see that God is eternally valuing the land and the creation. There's a value to what this, what is happening here. And as we start to think about where God takes all of this, we see a new heaven and a new earth. This isn't a, a detached, disembodied form of eternal existence in the you know, spiritual goo that is existing out there. This is, this is a physical reality. This is a place and a space where God dwells with humans, with us, his people. And this is the hope that we have. So in all of this, we see a value in the physical as well as in our relationship with God. We see that God has condescended to the physical. And this is important because without that, without that, we run into wealth chasing and wealth building that isn't appropriate. Without the context of the theology of this is God's and God values it, 
all of our wealth chasing is self-centered and focused in a scarcity model of competing for the best for myself. But when I can start to see it in terms of God's vision of humanity and how he lives with humanity, then I can start to have a different perspective on wealth gathering and building wealth than what I could before. And we're going to get into that. God is obsessed with his creation. You know, he, he's, he's always saying, I want to build you from, from the scarcity which you experience now. I want to build you into the plenty, into the place where, where I am and where you have all that you need, where there is no more suffering, where there is no more harm. And, and that's always the trajectory of Scripture. Um, Deuteronomy 28, 13 says it's a promise to, uh, to Israel and says, if you follow my ways, then you will be the head and not the tail. In other words, you will have and, and you will not go without. And, and there's that condition of, of obedience that was put on Israel. We see this all the way through scripture, that God is saying that he wants us to live in abundance, but he's checking our motivations. He's making sure that they're built in his vision of the future and not just my temporary, you know, feeling of how I get, how I get wealth. So scarcity itself is a symptom of death. This is interesting. Scarcity is It's not a description of the kingdom of God. When we don't have enough, we fight and we toil and we we struggle to get enough. Our economic system is based on how we work inside of scarcity. And uh, and so God's vision of wealth doesn't have us competing for control or power over another. God's ideal vision of wealth has there's enough resources for everybody. Imagine this. When, when we come to the politics of, of scarcity linked to death, we come to the politics of death, we start to realize that death itself is one of the greatest evils that, that we experience in this world. And it creates the idea of scarcity. One, your life comes and ends. And that's, a, that's a, a, an unsettling idea. You know, it makes me go, oh, well, well, I am finite and I struggle with my finitude. I struggle with both my finite in terms of space here, but in, in terms of how long I live. And that ends. And, and you know, when we don't see this, this view of, of resurrection, then this becomes all the value. There is no more and no less. And so, so that's the way it changes in between the, the God Christian view and and the secular view. In the secular view, this is it. This is all I got. In the Christian perspective, we're able to say, this is what I've got here and now, and then I am resurrected and I live in a physical existence in, in God's ideal. So everything I do now carries a different purpose. So um, we, we see that, that Jesus says, right now, the poor we're always going to have with us. You know, it it is real. Scarcity is real. It's part of this, this politics of death and scarcity. It's real and, and it happens. What we do is we foreshadow what it might look like when it won't be like this, when we don't have the scarcity. We try to allow resources and wealth to be something that, that allows an image of where God is taking humanity. And, uh, and, and that's, that's a trajectory to aim for. And I'm going to get into how we do that in, in just a minute. 
I really want to just hone in on how we see that God is valuing uh, the access to wealth and resources. And uh, it's actually in Leviticus 25. I'm not going to read it, but I'm going to explain it. Leviticus 25, 13 to 17 um, gives us a whole passage on the uh, Israelite law of the year of Jubilee. The year of Jubilee uh, is every 50th year, and I, I will read a little. It says, in the year of Jubilee, you sh- each of you shall return to his property. And if you make a sale to your neighbor or buy from your neighbor, you shall not wrong one another. What it's saying is it's saying every family Um, in Israel was given a plot of land. There was a land grant given. Again, this tying of of, uh, the kingdom of God to land. There's a land grant given to every tribe, every family. And the recognition is over 50 years, that family may have run into financial troubles and sold their land and taken the assets from it and tried to live on other people's land, renting or becoming a a servant or whatever. But in the year of Jubilee, everybody's to return to their land grant and everything resets. Why, Why would that happen? Well, God is saying every generation needs the right to be able to build on their resources, needs to have the access to resources. It was one of God's plans to deal with the scarcity model. And so we see that God is saying, I want to make sure that everybody has access to resources. I want that set inside the government model. And, uh, you know, there's no real record that the year of Jubilee ever was um, nationally observed. Um, we We didn't see any record of it really happening. So it's idealist. But isn't that idealist of God? Like God's looking at this ideal future where he's pulling all of humanity together to live in abundance. And so we see this happening. And so I have faith in God's ideal. I don't believe that we can make it happen now, but I do believe that we can point to it. We can show the heart of it. And that's how we deal with our wealth. So there are four ideas of generating wealth and four categories that you can put your wealth into. Um, This is a basic outline, but I found it helpful in in some ways to to help me think about what God has blessed us with and how we're able to work within it. Um, The main source is is your main source of of wealth or income is your job. You have a a job of some type, hopefully, and, uh, and that's your main source of income. That source of income has a specific job to do. Uh, Your source of income should be covering your monthly cost of living. In the first week, we talked about how to set out that budget. Your source of income, that job, that should be able to balance out your cost of living. There's a couple of things that you might want to do if that's not your reality right now. Um, You either need to find ways to increase that source of income uh, from a job and you know get creative with that and pray into that or find ways to make that job fit inside of your monthly cost of living you know we we those are just realities and we talked about that in in the first message in this series and if you want to go back and and listen to that again that's fine Uh, we're not going to go through it but that's your job it's providing your main source of income so the first one the second one is assets that build assets this is, this is interesting. In your monthly cost of living, it's, it is prudent to put aside a little bit that says, I am going to put some 
of my monthly income as a cost of living into an asset that builds more assets. So the money starts to gain money for itself. Now, when I started doing this as a, as a younger person, um, I, I started putting $20 a month away in, I think I locked it into an RSP. And, uh, you know, it was, it, it was pennies and it stayed pennies and it wasn't a lot of money. And I felt like, why am I doing this? This isn't going to get me anywhere. Um, the funny thing, what happened with that RSP is while I was cycling across Canada, I actually ran out of money because I'd quit my job. And so I didn't have money to cover my cost of expenses. And I ran out of money and I, and I was like, wait, I have an RSP. And I cashed it out. I, I paid taxes on it. I cashed it out and it got me my flight home from BC. So, okay, that's, uh, that's a reality. But we should be putting money aside into an asset that makes more assets. And that's your second category of wealth. Uh, some form of investments. Now, right now, um, while this whole virus stuff happens and we're recording, um, generally, the stock market's not going in the right direction. Maybe you want to avoid that. Maybe you want to put it into something a little bit more secure. But you want to be thinking about how do I allow this money to not just sit there and do nothing? How do I allow this money to double itself? How long is it going to take for this money to double? What do I need to do to, to help that along? How do I manage that area of wealth? And, uh, you know, there are great people around to talk about that. I'm willing to talk about it, but I'm not an expert in it. Um, there are experts, good Christian experts who can help you manage your assets to say, here's what you could do to help your asset build assets. This one was really interesting. Your hobbies. Your hobbies can be another source of wealth generation. Now, it's, it is, it's not always the case. You know, if my hobby is just simply reading a book, it's hard to monetize that. But your hobby can find a way that if you're creative, you can generate a small revenue from it. Now, this isn't really a revenue that's meant to be, um, you know, spent on, well, it can be spent on whatever, but a lot of times it's, it's not, okay, here's what it's not meant to be spent on. It's not meant to be covering your, your cost of living. Your hobby shouldn't be your cost of living source. Um, your hobby should just be something that builds into you, that you enjoy, that generates a little bit of extra slush fun that you might just throw towards a vacation or eating out or perpetuating the hobby. You know, and this, this is a totally different category of wealth production. Um, so one of the things that I would encourage is don't confuse your, uh, your subordinate, this, uh, this hobby income, with your main income. These aren't the same things. In fact, it's kind of jarring when you take your hobby and you make it your main source of income. It, it actually rocks your world. I, I started a youth group a long time ago. It was a secular youth group. We had a lot of fun. We played games and uh, just it was, it was my hobby and it was a, it was a work of, of the heart. And uh, eventually it turned into my career and my job. I became a minister. And what was really strange about that experience, where what was my passion and my hobby that, that I was able to just engage, it became my obligation and my job. And it's not that I, I lost passion for it. What, what was strange was that when I wasn't working, I didn't know what to do. And so I was like, my hobby became my job and now I have this hole that says, well, what should I do? Because what I was doing, I used to have a job and then fill the hole with my hobby. 
you replace that and and there's this jarring moment where it's like what do i do with my free time um and and so keep hobbies as hobbies if if your hobby gets to become your full-time job Praise God, that's wonderful. Now you need to replace that hobby area with something that's different that might generate an income for you. It might not. It's okay to have a hobby that doesn't generate an income. It's just another category that you can think of in terms of income. And then the last one is building for the next generation. There is value in us investing in building for the next generation. There's value in us saying, how do I put money and assets and resources aside to be able to help the next generation, whether it's my children or whether it's you know other, other individuals that I choose to write into my will. How do I put assets aside to help the next generation have resources so that they don't have to experience the level of scarcity that maybe I have already experienced? It's a noble cause. So, you know, you, you're, you're putting savings and, and investments aside to hand down to the next generation. You use your, your assets. The way you do this is you take from that second column the assets that build assets, and then you start to divide that out. And you start to say, okay, these assets are going to be made for the next generation. And, uh, and you start planning that out. So those are four categories to think of wealth. And we live in a generally wealthy environment. You know, we live in the Young Street corridor of the GTA, which is one of the main central hubs of, of economic success in Canada. And so we live in a place of wealth, even if you feel a month-to-month tension, we're living in a place of wealth. And so it's important that we think about how we assess our wealth. So I would just suggest these four areas, your main income source, your assets that build assets, your hobbies, and then uh, your considerations for the next generation. What we do with it speaks to our character. You know, are you generating wealth to satiate your own pleasure? Is that where we're going with this? Is it really just about I'm hoarding all of my wealth so that I can, I can just do what I want when I want? Or is there a greater cause? Is there something that's larger that we're attaching stuff to? In the end, what do you want your resources to accomplish that's beyond you? When we look at God's value of the earth the way we started, when we look at what God is doing to to show abundance, what is God doing in you that's saying, my resources need to accomplish something that's beyond me? What's that greater cause that you're able to start to to look towards? What element of the kingdom of God do you want your resources to start to foreshadow? And I'm not saying, oh, you know, you have to give to the church. No, I'm saying get creative with those resources and invest them into things that will foreshadow what the, uh, what we see happening in the kingdom of God. Next service. Um, we're going to be talking about dealing with debt and surplus and where we invest and how we deal with these impulses that we have that say, how do I use my wealth? How do I take this this wealth that I have and these impulses that I have and how do I apply them? So maybe it's time for you and your spouse or maybe the whole family to sit down and discuss some longer term financial goals. What do your family What does your family want to do to invest in something meaningful that goes beyond your simple, uh, and I say simple for a good reason, your, your impulses? 
that goes beyond your, oh, I'd like a bigger TV or I'd like a brand new car, but, but invest in something that is worthwhile. What do you want to be passionate about financially with your entire family? God, I thank you for the wealth that has been generated in the economy. And for so many of us, we live in a culture of wealth. Um, yes, I recognize that there is poverty among us. There is scarcity among us. But I also recognize that, that when we drive through our towns, when we go through suburbia, when we go into our urban centers, uh, we live in a culture of wealth. Uh, in comparison to places that live in genuine scarcity. Um, and so God, I pray that you would give each one of us as families wisdom on how to manage our wealth, the proportionate amounts of wealth that you've given each one of us as families, how to manage them and how to leverage that to, to foreshadow the fulfillment of your kingdom in some way, in some tangible, meaningful way that we will be able to invest in something that makes a difference in the world, that we will be able to say, yes, this time, this finite time that I had here on earth, is it has, it has had long-lasting impacts. And when I look back on my life, I know that what I did was meaningful. And, uh, and so, God, I pray that you would give each one of us wisdom, give us discernment, and allow us to be grateful for every single thing that you have blessed us with. We thank you for all this in Jesus' name. Amen.